Hello and welcome to The Appetite, a podcast brought to you by Opal Food and Body Wisdom, an eating disorder treatment program center in Seattle, Washington. I'm your host, Carter Umhow, a therapist, artist, and writer. The Appetite is all about issues of food, body, sport, and mental health. And today we have somewhat of a special episode. I really want Kara Bazzi, Opal, one of Opal's co-founders and the director of the exercise and sport program, to kind of introduce us to this topic today. Thanks, Carter. I'm really excited about this morning. Uh, We have two guests today. We have Monica Van Winkle, who's a local sports dietitian, and Jason DeRocher, who is a certified athletic trainer. And, And then there's me and the conversation. And it just feels like a really exciting opportunity to have different roles within the sport and athletic context, be having a conversation. And we're really going to focus this morning about what we would call the sport, quote unquote, family, the system in the in especially in the collegiate sport world. And I guess also maybe in high school and and beyond of these different roles that are in an athlete's life. And it feels really exciting to be able to all of us for all of us to be in the room together and have a conversation together about what it takes to have a healthy functioning sport family. Thank you, Kara. Yeah, it's it's a really awesome opportunity to to be able to have all these different roles within the athlete's life represented in the room for the sake, I think, primarily for eating disorder prevention as well, mm-hmm. so that we can really think about how that happens and what different athletic trainers, dietitians, coaches, parents, everybody can do in order to look out for um, some of the red flags mm-hmm. and create a culture that is really supportive for athletes. Right. So, um, Monica, Jason, welcome. Thank, Thank you. you. Yeah. I would love to hear from each of you um, what you do, how that all started, and um, yeah, what your role is. Well, thank you for inviting me to this podcast. I'm really excited about it. Obviously, I'm an athletic trainer. Uh, I've been a certified athletic trainer for 20 years. I've worked in the college setting my entire athletic training career, with the exception of my education. And really, that was in college, too. So I've really been around college athletics for a long time. Uh, My primary role is to be a facilitator. Obviously, I receive training in sports medicine and injury evaluation. I've also had education in um, sports nutrition, um, sports psychology. And uh, with 20 years, you realize that there's a lot more to an athlete being an athlete than just food, uh, than just psychology, and certainly just than training. So I'm excited to be here and to lend an ear and, and a voice to my role in the sport family and how um, I can really be an advocate for student athletes to perform their very best. Mm-hmm. Thank you. It's fun. I met Jason a couple of years ago. He came to a workshop we held for coaches and athletic trainers at Opal and um, really enjoyed meeting him there. So this is fun to reunite. And what about you, Monica? I am a local dietitian and I practice sports nutrition as well in the area. And I am in private practice. My practice, I probably split 50-50 with working with people to help them recover from eating disorders. And then I also work with athletes and artists just to help them excel in their sport or their art. And I work with, consult with a couple teams, the Seattle Mariners. Um, I met Jason through Seattle Pacific University. I do some contracting there. Over my time as a sports dietitian, I've worked with a lot of team positions, athletic trainers, strength coaches, coaches. And I'm just excited to be here because I think when we can all collaborate like this, it helps the athlete be the best that they can be. Mm-hmm. 
and Opal, we've known Monica for many years. Julie and Lexi and I have had relationships with, with her before Opal existed in private practice. So it's yes. fun to be have Monica join us on the podcast. Yeah. So many different wonderful overlaps. I know. As the non-athlete in the room, <laughs> I would love to get a better understanding of kind of what the different roles look like in terms of how you each support um, support the athlete and what that crossover looks like for your athletes. Again, my, my role is to, to facilitate. So in sports medicine, my role specifically is, is that athletes come to me when, when they get injured, uh, typically, and they want to know if, if what their injury is and, and how to fix it. And so more often than not, I do a lot of injury evaluation and diagnosis. Oftentimes, injuries are more complex than just a, a boo-boo, right? <laughs> more, than a, more than a scratch or a contusion or a bruise. Sometimes it's a stress fracture. And that can be a really complex injury. It can be due to biomechanics um, and overuse, but it oftentimes can be related to one's diet, to one's um, nutritional intake, to the amount of rest and recovery that they're getting to making sure that their vitamin intake is appropriate. And so um, it's a very holistic approach to evaluating an athletic injury and determining you know, what, what the potential causes are. When I see something that I, I believe to be significant, it's often a referral to the team physician. But if there's a nutritional component or if there's a psychological component, then it's oftentimes a referral to a registered dietitian like Monica or to somebody like Kara, who um, can really help an athlete excel in those areas where their level of expertise is certainly more than my own. Jason, how, would, how do you know at what point you would do the referral? Um, what level of engagement would you have with the athlete about these various topics before you would send them to Monica or to a mental health professional like me or a, or a physician? Using this, the simple example of a stress fracture and, and being thorough in that evaluation process, I would say, you know, there, there's the physical signs and symptoms. And then there's the, the follow-up questions that I ask, like, you know, if it's a female athlete, are you menstruating regularly? Mm -hmm. And is that healthy, you mm -hmm. know, or not healthy? And if they're not, then it's unhealthy. Mm -hmm. What does your diet look like? You know, are you consuming a well-rounded diet? Are you sure that you're getting vitamins and minerals? And a lot of times... They're lacking in that area. It's the first time they've been in college. They've been away from home. Or maybe they come from a home where they didn't get good nutrition, and now they have all of these different options available that they didn't have before, and they're just not really sure what to do. And, you know, for me, it's just like, okay, I, I know enough to know that you should eat a well-rounded diet, and if you are missing certain things, that an expert like a registered dietitian can be really, really helpful. And the psychological component, I think that if an athlete oftentimes is not performing well, there can be a psychological component to that. So just asking simple questions like, how, how are you doing with this injury? How are you adjusting to college? How are you adjusting to the training? It's probably a lot different than you've ever experienced in the past. And if there are red flags, if there are concerns on the student-athlete's part in that area, then oftentimes it's really simple to just make a referral to the sports site consultant and to explain to them why having a conversation with somebody who's an expert in that area could really help their performance. Mm -hmm. Athletes are highly motivated. Mm -hmm. They're very driven to perform well. And so really it's about giving them the tools to be successful. Mm -hmm. One of the things that I experienced as a former collegiate athlete is some of the resistance or fear of 
going to to see a professional, going to see the dietitian, going to see this the sports psychologist. I found that, and I think I've heard this from multiple people that athletes feel feel most comfortable talking to the athletic trainer. Um, they open up more to the the trainer because they, there's a safety there. Kind of the felt sense of whether there's trust or not trust in the system, um, and then therefore impacting the decisions that an athlete would make about whether they would take that referral or not. So I'm, I guess I'm curious in your system if you find that the athlete takes those referrals and and does follow up, or if well they they really do because they obviously follow my directive. Yeah. Um, but I think you touched on the importance of trust mm-hmm. and. I've been doing this for a long time, and so I think from the very outset, it's about establishing a relationship like it is with anything else in life. And when you have a relationship with somebody and you trust that person, then, um, yes, I'm, I'm an expert in sport injury. Mm-hmm. You know, one of my goals as an athletic trainer is to keep athletes participating. I think sometimes there's a stereotype that if I see the physician, they're just going to tell me, well, take a bunch of drugs and take a bunch of time off. Mm-hmm. And I think... One of my roles is to say, okay, is this injury significant enough that you really need to rest? Or can we manage this? Communicating that at the outset, that that's my role and that's my goal is to help them continue to participate. I think that helps establish a line of trust. And then obviously over time, coming and seeing me early rather than at the end and communicating that at the very beginning. It's okay to come and see me even if you're not sure about something because Let's have a conversation and having that conversation right at the beginning and and going through that process, I think really helps establish trust Mm -hmm. so that when they do have a legitimate and and real injury that does require rest or does require a change in their process, they trust that we're doing the right thing. Mm -hmm. And that when a referral is made, when I do make that referral to the physician, it's it's for good reason. Mm -hmm. And again, uh, going back to what we said before, I think that sometimes involves the registered dietitian and uh, the sports site consultant Mm -hmm. to have a more well-rounded approach. Mm -hmm. I think that's one area where coaches can especially be helpful, just in terms of normalizing seeing the dietitian and normalizing Mm -hmm. seeing a sports psychologist. And more often than not, I will get a referral just for weight loss. There's so much more in that the performance, I'm a performance nutritionist. And if more people could just normalize, everyone should see the dietitian to learn how to maximize their energy, how to recover, how to get more out of all their training and experience those training adaptations instead of waiting until there is some kind of problem, quote unquote, quote, problem. unquote problem. <laughs> And then the athletes feel, well, I got referred to the dietitian because there was something wrong with my weight instead of this is cool that I have this resource and that we get to use this here. I think the same thing with sports psychology. I tell athletes all the time, you are crazy not to use that, Mm -hmm. that resource that you have. And there's so much to just in terms of mental wellness, letting things go by that we can't control and so that our bodies can just naturally do what we train them to do day in and day out. I mean, coaches can talk about how they went and met with, just got some tips from the the psychologist about mm-hmm. coaching or they went and spoke with the dietitian or come to the to my team talks so you can be there and hear and be engaged and the athletes can see that you're excited about everything that nutrition can do for them. I think what I'm hearing too, like the key in establishing trust, and Jason, you touched on this, is saying we do want to maximize your performance. We want you to kind of achieve those goals because I think one of the 
fears of seeing a dietitian, at least I've heard seeing a dietitian or seeing a, th- a mental health provider would be some, that would create some kind of barrier that then they wouldn't be able to compete or it would somehow do something detrimental <laughs> to their performance instead of enhancing the performance so that they would know that we're on their side too. Like we're all coming together to help the athlete and that the, all the providers have trust in each other, that it, that's a mutual goal especially as a mental health provider on the outside of the university setting. I'm not within the athletic department. So the trust between the athletic department referring to a mental health provider, knowing that the mental health provider has the um, understanding of that athletic identity and wants to enhance the performance versus like helping the athlete decide that they don't want to do the sport anymore or something and pull them out of the sport. I think that's been a place of mistrust. I think, Kara, that that is something I really appreciate. And I also wonder, though, about sort of the assumption that someone like Monica, who's in the role as um, guidance around nutrition, there's clear that there's an assumption that no one would need that necessarily unless again, there's a problem. So to hear you say, Jason, that actually a stress fracture can be a sign of a problem with nutrition. I'm curious if that sort of language is normal within the communities that you all are in. I would say it's 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 usually on the more minimized end. I would say more kind of disordered behaviors are normative within the athletic context. And so more education is needed. I don't think it's um, necessarily intentional that it's minimized. It comes from the larger culture of seeing disordered things being more normalized. (laughs) And that then trickles into the athletic context too of things being normalized that aren't great actually for an athlete's performance. But I don't know, would, would you guys, what do you think about that? I think the low energy availability is something that's, that's certainly normalized. And what does that mean exactly? Oh, I'm sorry. That's so okay. that's athletes are expending so much energy through exercise, and low energy availability is when you have too much energy going out through movement and not enough energy coming in through nutrition, and that can often lead to stress fractures. It can it shows up a little bit more obviously for females. They will lose their period, so that can be a direct indicator that something's going on. And I think even the loss of menstrual function is normalized. The only thing I would really add is, you know, I learned in grad school that sport reflects culture. And so listening to what you said, Kara, about normalization of psychological disorders, perhaps in society, being something that is becoming more normalized in collegiate athletics, I, I would agree with that. It's a, it's a real hot topic in the NCAA and among athletic trainers. How do we manage the student-athlete who has a lot of anxiety and a lot of stress? And, and what are some tools that we can give them to, to help do that well? When it comes to the nutrition side of things, I would simply agree with Monica that there's probably a lot more athletes that uh, are under-consuming than over-consuming. But we're talking about a wide spectrum of sports. You know, there, there's a big difference between a football player and, and a female cross-country runner. That breadth of variability is why I love referring to experts in nutrition because, you know, I, I know enough to be dangerous. And I think also our coaches know enough to be dangerous. They've been doing this for a long time but we're not experts in that area. And so that's where the sport family really, really helps to help an athlete be their very best. It's, it's when we stay within our lane and help 
provide uh, student athletes a level of expertise in each of these areas that they they are able to to get the best information. Mm-hmm. And to play off of what Monica said, too, about everyone should see a dietitian, I would agree, again, going back to the cultural piece, because there's a cultural anxiety in relationship to food. And so I don't think there's very many people in the culture that have adequate eating and have ease with food. And so, again, that's going to be true for the athletes as well. I feel curious about how all three of you see this idea of sport reflecting the culture or vice versa? Like how how do you see maybe some of the pressures around body image or um, physique showing up within the sport world? Certainly, I mean, we talk about this idea of thin privilege just in general, that someone who is thin, quote unquote thin, can go to the doctor and not ever have their weight be mentioned. Whereas someone who is, you know, I, I call it like internal fitness where you are just strong from the inside and you can go to the doctor and if the doctor feels your BMI or, which I think means bull crap made important. <laughs> <you're> <laughs> That's BMI, I like that. <laughs> bull crap made important. <laughs> so your BMI, suddenly you're told without even being asked, do you get a variety of foods and do you sleep? Do you manage your stress? And do you get movement? They're told that there's something wrong with their body. And so I think where that translates into sport is there's this idea that the lighter we are, the smaller we are, the faster we are. But if you're naturally in that type of body, of course, you can be powerful in that because that's your natural athletic body. But if an athlete's not in that body, then they are not going to be more powerful and stronger and faster if they are restricting to try to be in a, a smaller body. It's certainly reflected from what we experience in our general mm-hmm. culture. And I, I would just love to get to a place where where beauty is in what the human body is capable of in terms of performance and not what it looks like. There's this mentality of if you eat like me, you'll look like me. me. Mm -hmm. I guess just another piece of this is high profile athletes talk about what they're eating. And I can't tell you how many times I've seen just, for example, I worked with a pretty high profile athlete who I saw an article about him in the paper where he was stating that he was dairy free. And I was like, this this will be interesting. And so I walk into the dining area where he's eating after I'd seen him a few weeks later. And he's eating breakfast. He's having eggs with cheese on top of them. And so I just said, dairy-free, huh? And and he's like, I, I told them it's just cow's milk. And <laughs> so either way, he did have a really good season. And so for someone who's read that article – the message to them is that dairy, he cut it out, and therefore that's why he performed well. And I think it's just dangerous when we get this small snapshot into what an athlete's doing, which more often than not is mm-hmm. what's going on. Mm-hmm. Yeah, all of it taken out of context, right. likely. Yeah, right. Which social media would is a massive problem with that. Right. From a taking it out of context standpoint. Right. Considering there is so much sort of melding of worlds and bad boundaries around the kind of information we get. It reminds me of what you said, Jason, about how everyone within the athletic family needs to stay within their lane. And I think it also highlights probably how most people don't know what their lane is. 
maybe. <laughs> like if if it's so normal to comment regularly on people's body shape or their diet, and that's just what people do. If someone's not an expert, are they really refraining from making some comments that are actually entirely incorrect? As an athletic trainer, again, this isn't my area of expertise, but when we talk about what we see in the culture and what the advertisement is and the magazine covers and everything, uh, when we talk about professional athletes communicating things like Monica just said about being dairy-free or doing specific things for themselves, there's so much out there that, that is confronting athletes, student athletes for me that um, there's so much misinformation. You know, we talk about quackery in, in sports nutrition, and, it, and it's a, a legitimate thing. It, it really is. And I think a really important thing for every athlete to hear, for parents to hear, for coaches to hear, is that every single body, every body is different. And um, because every body is different, there are different demands. Um, there are different things that work. You know, what if you have a a lactose intolerance. You know, what if you have some of these things and therefore you have some dietary restrictions? And as a professional athlete, maybe you've gotten to meet with a registered dietitian and they've created a plan for you that helps you to perform your best. But then somebody interviews you and tells you that <laughs> I've eliminated this from my diet and it's helped me perform. But a young 13-year-old girl or, uh, you know, a 17-year-old aspiring male basketball player that wants to go to college hears that from, you know, a, a professional athlete. They're like, well, I, if that helped them, that's certainly going to help me. And there's, it's just too complex to, to make those assumptions. But we do that in our culture with food, with nutrition. And I think like in the the sports side, like the credibility matters, right? Like sure. that's huge in the sport world of who do you respect, who is the cachet. And people are really looking to the ones that are performing really on the highest end to look up to and role model themselves after, which is, again, for better, or for worse. I mean, I, I know I tend to sometimes go with that and then find the better role models that are going to have freedom with food. <laughs> but still, it, that's just, a, that's part of, that's again, reflecting in culture of power and who holds the highest privilege and the highest competing athlete does. And they have so many resources, right, right. available to them. Whereas the, the high school athlete coming from a, a rural community Maybe doesn't have mm -hmm. those resources, and but they're only hearing the professional interview. Right, makes a big difference. And so for me, I think it's a, a lot about educating our student athletes, mm -hmm. and and educating our coaches that everybody is different. And one thing I'd want to say on that everybody is different that feels really important for educating is you can't look at a body and have that determine what they're doing with their food, right? Like right. oftentimes people are going to be concerned if they see somebody drop a lot of weight and be emaciated or maybe gaining weight and feeling fear around that. But there are a lot of athletes that are maybe somewhere in between that will get missed, very easily missed if, if a coach or if uh, sports staff are just looking at the body to be the indicator of what's going on because Again, everybody responds differently to behaviors <laughs> or how what people are doing in their relationship with food. Um, it doesn't just mean that you restrict – if somebody's restricting, they're going to lose weight. Some people can restrict heavily and be in a larger body. Right. There's a lot of identification issues in the sport context for somebody struggling with food and body issues. I guess a question that I'd love to ask um, is how do coaches who work with athletes who – generally appear 
to be successful and have the same body type, ensure that that doesn't become their primary focus point. I think what I want to say to that end is that coaches will often see a snapshot in time for an athlete. So we know that during season, there's periodization with training. So there may be a higher load, higher volume, and each individual athlete's body is going to respond to that differently. But right before they peak, before a big race, their body may look a little bit differently. We know that that type of high workload, high volume cannot be sustained for an entire year, off-season, in-season. It's all periodization. And then you can periodize nutrition around that. And so I think sometimes a coach will see that. And it's easy to lose sight of the big picture and just zero in on maybe, okay, that athlete won that national championship. And if I can just get my athlete to look like that, then, you know, maybe we can have the same result. I think the other thing that happens a lot is sometimes when, well, often when an athlete starts restricting, and this is really hard to reach the athlete in this phase, but you will perform a little better (laughs) more often than not when you start restricting because hormones, stress hormones that delay fatigue are upregulated in the beginning stages of restriction. So adrenaline, cortisol, norepinephrine, epinephrine, those are all upregulated because our body, when we are pushing it and the demands are so high on it, and we are running circles around a track or we're sprinting, you know, down a field, our body thinks we are in the middle of the wilderness being chased by a lion and we're looking for food. We don't realize there's a Starbucks on every corner or (laughs) a Safeway. And so in the immediate, that athlete is really hard to reach because they feel energized because they've got all these stress hormones. The problem is, is those will burn out. And I call it the cliff effect where I can see the cliff coming. I can see they're going to fall off it. More often than not, they're too malnourished when they do fall off of it to come back once they fall. So a coach may see that athlete at the one time in their career when they unfortunately have started down this road of restriction and where they may have peaked right then. And then that's just that snapshot. And then that's kind of what they run with. The listeners on this podcast, have, if they've heard some of my story, that I w- that was my story, right? And from a psychology standpoint, you're also pairing those two and having the felt experience of the restriction and the peak performance. And so even with knowledge at that point that that's not going to sustain and in the long term, you're going to have to have more adequate nutrition to perform well. You've already had this kind of right brain felt experience of, of this that go, that runs really deep. So it's very difficult. That's why early prevention and early information about it. Um, is so much more effective because I think, again, I wouldn't know this for sure, but if had I been told that before my first collegiate year that I might have initial performance improvement with restriction, um, but it would go away before I had the felt experience of it, I think that could have really made a major difference in the way I treated my body my freshman year. Right, right. It really speaks to why education is so important for Mm -hmm. our student athletes to get them in front of people like you, Monica, or people like you, Kara, who are experts in this area. This is something that I've learned over 20 years as an athletic trainer, but it's even more important for a student athlete or a coach to hear that from an expert like you guys. Mm -hmm. 
your experience lends a huge amount of credibility mm -hmm. to your knowledge and expertise. And the same is true for Monica. Mm -hmm. Why is it that you think that coaches don't get access to this information easily? I think that coaches have a lot of responsibility. I, I think that their focus and what makes them so good is, is their focus on performance and really pushing the athlete to the edge of what they think that they can accomplish. Again, we, we all have our roles, you know? And so I think, you know, at the, at the high levels, and, and I can't speak for every coach, right? Um, at the high levels, there's just a lot of pressure mm -hmm. to perform, right? Mm -hmm. There, I mean, when you're paying a, a coach millions of dollars, they want to control everything, right? And, and I would too. I mean, if I was under that kind of pressure, like the more control I have, the more I can get the result or at least expect that whatever the result is, it's because of me, right? That, that's made that a success. For the rest of us, and I, I guess I would include, you know, a, a small Division two school, a small Division three school, a high school who maybe doesn't have as many resources, again, those coaches are still seeing those head coaches who are really, really successful with those teams as their model and looking and saying, okay, I got to do that too um, because I want to be successful too. And we measure, unfortunately, success in terms of wins and losses. You know, an, an injury can often be a really developmental experience. <laughs> mm -hmm. We don't want those to happen, but they can be uh, because it can open up a world of resource uh, to the student athlete. And really, I think my role is to try to get as many of those resources available to our student athletes. If I was talking to athletic trainers out there who were listening, I would say, create a team of experts around you that can help you to help an athlete the best because we don't know it all. And I, I would say the same thing to coaches and encourage coaches to, to try to get to these things, to listen to something like a podcast uh, because I know they're busy and, um, Maybe they hear something here that um, helps them to communicate to an athlete better than um, they might otherwise if they hadn't heard from an expert. Yeah, I mean, hopefully it would provide some relief to have a team around an athlete, right? That as coach, you don't have to do it all. And if you operationalize things to make it all the same for all your athletes, you're not going to do your athletes a service because each athlete is unique. Like imagine, yeah, all the stuff Monica could get to with an athlete around their relationship with food that um, a coach just, you know, I mean, they have their limitations. I mean, I think that is huge. That part's huge. I think of like the whole statement of it takes a village. Well, it does take a village to develop anybody. I think one thing that is, I imagine to be difficult for coaches, especially in a school that doesn't have a full-time dietitian, for example, is they don't see you enough to build a relationship with you. And so it's kind of this outsider coming in and they I don't know how they suspend that kind of trust and maybe just meet with the dietitian, get to know them. Like I said, come to presentations to hear what the athlete is going to hear but I imagine that's very difficult when they do have enormous pressure on them to win and even their jobs are tied to winning. And now there's this monetary component in sport, even in collegiate athletics, where the athletes make more money in the future if they're performing better and the coaches get more money as well. So there's a lot at stake for them if they don't trust 
an individual. That sounds so much to me like a family system, right? The, yep. With this sort of stereotypical, punitive, distant father that sort of comes into discipline <laughs> or comes in to sort of um, set the tone for his children. And then other people are sort of left, either it's the teachers or the mother or the nanny. Or I feel like I've seen that trope in a lot of movies. It sounds like sort of a similar role where someone has so much authority and so much power and a lot of admiration. And probably the people that are learning from that person want so much approval and yet also need other resources too. So one question that I have is this idea for a coach who maybe sends their athlete to the sports psychologist. Or um, even with me, there's obviously so much emotion tied with food. And a classic case I will see is I will get a referral from a coach for weight because for whatever reason that quote-unquote weight is not okay. And I'll often find with the individual athlete that they're restricting throughout the day and they aren't eating right before, after practice. And then what's happening is that their primal hunger kicks in and they're starving at night when things kind of settle down, when they're studying, and then they're binging. And so I will tell the athlete, you, we need to help you work on planning ahead. I call it offensive eating, thinking ahead, planning breakfast, eating every three to four hours, actually every three hours, meeting your energy needs, eating before and after practice, and supporting performance and then seeing what happens if that decreases those urges to binge. The athlete, of course, doesn't want me to tell the coach that they're binging. And so they will go back and tell the coach, Monica just told me to eat more. And that's the end of the conversation. But there's a limitation for what I'm allowed to tell the coaches in terms of protecting the athlete from the medical standpoint. And I imagine the same as with a therapist and how a coach can can work around that, that it's it's beneficial to their athlete for the coach not to have all the information sometimes. Mm -hmm. I don't know. It's a big question. Yeah. I guess when I'm working with athletes, obviously I want to, I'm, I'm establishing trust, trust with my client. I'm establishing trust with the athlete, but then I'm also really wanting to foster the collaboration with all the all the people in their in their lives, including their coach. So they might be very resistant to communication with the coach at first, but that is going to be something I'm going to be working on because it's not benefiting the athlete to have no co collaboration with the coach. I don't think, and so I can first try to understand the the lack of trust, but then being able to have some yeah nuance into what needs to be communicated to be helpful. And bringing the athlete alongside of that. I imagine that whether an athlete wants to include or give permission for a lot of conversation between their different providers or the members of the team or they don't, I've, I, can, I can see that maybe a coach could do some work around at least understanding what they do and don't know so that they can maybe when they hear an athlete come to them and say, oh, you know, Monica told me to just eat more, they can at least register, huh, I might not understand what that's about and leave it at that, knowing that they have their own expertise and that other people have theirs and that that understanding of the different roles in and of itself could be really helpful yeah. so that people stay in their lane. And we've offered that too, I think, and that's another parallel to our just traditional family therapy at Opal 
it, where we have an orientation session just to treatment and to opal and to eating disorders. And I would say like I've offered that to coaches too before there's permission to talk about the actual athlete but to like get into stuff around weight and performance and have the conversation just around, you know, what as in my expertise, like where, where my, where I'm coming from and what the client is doing in treatment. And that could be like a, a stepping stone. This, this is all about trust. Mm -hmm. An athlete, I'm going to encourage that athlete to communicate to their coach as much as I can, but I'm going to also hear I want to ask them, why don't you trust your coach? Right. What do you believe about your coach? And and at my institution, yeah. I believe because of my relationship and my role as a facilitator that all my coaches love my student-athletes. I think they miscommunicate with not necessarily knowing enough because they're not educated enough. Mm -hmm. And I've done that in my life, mm -hmm. <laughs> right? Mm -hmm. Like we make comments without knowing enough. Mm -hmm. More questions, less comments. Because people... And an athlete, like all of us, we make meaning all the time. So to understand how and what the athlete thinks about something is so much more valuable than just commenting about what you assume they're thinking. So today we've talked a ton about some of the things to be um, avoiding, looking out for, ways in which uh, we can understand sort of the sport family differently. Monica, would you add anything in terms of what to be really careful about if things start going wrong? <laughs> right. I think, again, just the way the, po the coaches can, or parents or anyone working with an athlete can create just a positive environment around food is, again, just talking about all the things that food can do for us and just coming from a generalized place. I think it's perfectly within a coach's scope to just talk about sleep and mental health and stress management, nutrient timing, asking their athlete, did you eat before and after practice? Did you recover and refuel? And then if they're not, provide the referral. But just talk about nutrition in general terms. I think mm -hmm. that's certainly okay and, and very helpful for athletes to hear. And then I think the one thing I would just kind of remind people to be cautious of is that because athletes are so goal-oriented that you really want to be careful of staying away from discussions about weight. And again, just if you have any concerns or the athlete brings concerns about their weight, talk to someone like Jason just to get advice on how to address that. You know, you ask them questions. Kara often says, you know, just see how they're doing. Ask what's going on in, in their day and get to know them as a person outside of them being an athlete. And just really staying away from talking about weight because that goal-oriented athlete they're very driven and that's what helps them excel in sport. But if you take that drive and you put it toward, you motivate them toward a challenge, like let's lose a certain amount of weight and that's not within their set point range or their set point body fat, then that can become a very dangerous thing very quickly for that athlete. I always think of, this is online, but David Proctor at Boston University, he, he remembers the moment his coach made a comment and he said, hey, you look like the American diets, he was British, or is British, but it looks like the American diet's really getting to you. And just that athlete mindset, he woke up the next day, and that was the beginning of his journey with anorexia. He got out of bed and decided he was not going to eat that day. And he had a few years where he was recovering from the, that eating disorder. One, one thing I would add to that is the power of being silent 
and how you can, as a coach, acknowledge weight and acknowledge nutrition um, and not be silent about it, but then refer um, and not get into the specifics like Monica's saying. And so I think to to uh, address the piece of sort of the normative part of having anxiety around food in the culture and in the sport environment for a coach to acknowledge that they're aware of that, like to acknowledge that nutrition and all these aspects are part of how we understand our performance and how we're trying to understand ourselves to be. So this is a, this is something that is a part of being an athlete that you're probably grappling with. And here are your resources to talk about it, but that the coach is acknowledging it's a thing is uh, I think can be really powerful. And then the other place I would think it would be appropriate for a coach to comment about weight is if there's a weight change. But again, not making an assumption about that weight change, but just using it as a place to like get curious with the athlete. Like, how are you doing? I've noticed a change and I'm curious what's going on for you. Do you need support? Are you, are you okay? What's happening? I feel like that would be an appropriate place to address the athlete as a coach when it comes to weight. And, um, and I would add like making sure that there's not a weight bias in that. So right. that uh, it's the, neutral, right. a neutral question of it's a change. I'm observing this change, right. and either could, lower or higher. Exactly. And yep. it could be a good thing if it's higher yep. and it could like it could go all sorts of ways. Exactly. I but think the, when, when you set up a culture like that where weight is neutral, mm-hmm. then you can make a comment like that. But exactly. if there's always a tie with weight or any weight gain being a negative thing, if you say to an athlete, I've noticed a change, they're going to hear, I've noticed something's wrong right. with your weight. Yes. Right. Yeah. Right. So the culture has to be different first. Right. Yeah. Good point. Good point. <laughs> yeah. Have to, it would have to, again, be in that place of like, yeah, safety. I think I would just say we, we've continued to come back to trust being the main point here. And I would also tell a coach, nutrition is really, is important, but it's not the only thing. Mm-hmm. So there are so many other things that make an athlete successful. And if nutrition becomes the primary point, and especially if nutrition is just, is the only thing that's associated with weight, man, that, that is a really dangerous and slippery slope, yeah. but there's so much more. I think the biggest one is, is sleep and are you getting enough sleep? <laughs> That's, a, that's, a, that's just a great place to start, but you can look at training. You can look at um, genetics. You can look at so many other things. Don't make nutrition the only emphasis. Mm-hmm. It's important, but it's not the only emphasis. And so if right. we overemphasize mm-hmm. it, we, we just we, it becomes a problem. Yeah. And even like how are your relationships going? How is For stress sure. going? How are you doing in school? How are you, right? How is this transition? There's yeah. so many things about you know, yeah. that part of their lives. Well, thank you both for joining us in this conversation. Um, I can imagine that we have maybe even more resources to give um, the listeners here, athletes, coaches, et cetera, um, that have been listening today. And we can include some resources for those people um, in our show notes. Um, So I feel like you were going to say something. No, I'm not. I'm so excited to say thank you. It's been really fun to be here with you guys. Um, And I just want to add that I work with coaches who knock this out of the park every day. And some of those resources we're including can help anyone listening um, know how to do that. 
for those that want to learn more, uh, please find a little bit more information about Opal's exercise and sport program at opalfoodandbody.com. And of course, we'll continue to put some more links in the description box for some more learning around these topics. If you want to learn more about uh, sport nutrition, uh, we also have a podcast about that too uh, with Kelly Finan, one of Opal's dietitians. So you can look back in our log and get a little bit more info on that as well. Follow along with Opal on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at opalfoodandbody.com. Thank you so much to Jack Straw Cultural Center for sound engineering, to Aaron Davidson for the Appetite's original music, and to Hans Anderson for editing. And thank you for listening. Join us next time. Bye.